artistic expression that can move us very deeply. When the Buddha gave a list of the resources for awakening, he talked about listening to Dharma, reflecting on Dharma, meditating on Dharma, teaching Dharma, and contact with nature. And I think he just missed out. <laughs> Let it go in now. <laughs> in the contact with nature, contact with creativity. In the contact with nature is often something that beauty, basically. Good contact with nature means contact with beauty in whatever form and the way it can draw some extraordinary sensitivity out of the heart. There's something about an attention to beauty, expression of beauty, that literally draws us into it. And certainly being in nature, I may have experienced just being the kind of beautiful grounds here at Guy House, and the beautiful weather as well. Just something in the contact of trees, sky, sunshine, greenness, kind of draws our appreciation. Something in beauty in terms of artistic expression, music, poetry, art, that has the same quality to it. And the way in which a creative expression can somehow point to something profound. I used to feel rather frustrated at my lack of creative expression. I had friends who could paint and I didn't think I could. I had friends who were accomplished musicians and even though I played the guitar a bit, it couldn't be described in any way as artistic expression. And yet, I also came to see Dharma practice as a creative expression. <laughs> Meeting life itself as artistic. And the, the very act of engaging in life, I think it's really helpful if we can see our practice as an engagement with life that's creative, artistic even, and in such that's playful, that's experimental. It's hard to do that when our life feels narrowed by preoccupation. No? We're often preoccupied. And maybe walking through the gardens here at Kaya House. But if we're preoccupied with my stuff, we don't notice. Birds could be singing beautifully. We literally, they literally don't appear. 
the access to beauty is completely cut off by that sense of narrowed preoccupation. And so one of the ways to actually practice engaging with life is as a creative expression. And yet in order for that to be genuinely playful or wide open, it has to be bigger than oneself. There's a beautiful quote by Leonard Cohen. They recently made a film about his life called I'm Your Man. And there's a quote in the, in the film where he speaks about going into the monastery. And he says, I found things became a lot easier. I misquote lots of people, but I won't misquote lots of them. Karen, hold on, I've written it down. I found things became a lot easier when I no longer expected to win. You abandon your masterpiece and you sink into the real masterpiece. I like that as an expression of spiritual practice, abandoning my masterpiece. What a pressure in life to be having to shore up myself in order to produce my masterpiece, in order to hold to my agendas, in order to drive my life along. It's a whisper of extraordinary creative promise in abandoning my masterpiece. Oh, oh. but it, it, Dharma language is often called laying down the burden and sinking into the real masterpiece. Extraordinary vision of possibility. The masterpiece that life lives or manifests or reveals, offers Life is offering itself, moment by moment, in extraordinary ways. But all the while I'm trying to uh, fabricate or present my masterpiece. And we miss the way, li uh, we miss kind of life's self-actualized masterpiece. So our pr spiritual practice offers us an opportunity to engage creatively moment by moment in a way that isn't about me. To sense one's participation in life, which is always already happening, without manufacturing it, driving it along. I wonder if I can sense the, the uh, broad possibility in that, the playfulness in that. 
that playfulness that's kind of so reduced when I think I've got to be responsible for making this or that happen to support my whatever it might be. And of course, there's a, there's a certain... Uh, it's not to dispute the validity of taking care of my stuff in the everyday sense of the world. But how easily taking care of my stuff, that means earning, my, earning a living and you know, being responsible for feeding and clothing myself or those that I'm responsible for. How easily that extends so far that the world of me and my driving along becomes all there is. And our access to what we could call the, the masterpiece is filtered so often through what I can get from it. What I can get from life. Is that, is that what's become, what's ended up as, in an unconscious way, the totality of our creative expression, what I can get from life. One of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, described the process, what I suppose Leonard Cohen is calling <coughs> sinking into the masterpiece. He described it as giving back to life what we have wrongly appropriated from it. And in our meditations, in our explorations, it's a real reflection for us. What have I wrongly appropriated from life? What have I taken from this vast, mysterious, ever-manifesting movement called life and made into a fixed structure? Mine. Or equally, not mine. This and that. Here and there. Me and other my life and the world. If we look at a masterpiece, if we look at a, a piece of art that we find inspiring, we may notice as well as the content of the uh, artwork, content means the form, the objects that are painted, there's also just, it's a flat canvas. And so what's actually there is just differences in shape and colour and texture and form. But even though the ob objects may be painted, house here, person there, sky here, whatever, it's one whole thing. Huh? Colour, form, shape. And we kind of see that in two dimensions, but it gets a bit more tricky in three dimensions. We get more sense of breaking things up into space. But actually, the masterpiece, in at least three dimensions, that is life, is the same thing. When we look out, as we do right now, as we're sitting here, actually, what's what we perceive, what we take in, is a dance of colour, shape, form, movement. That in its most essential and direct appearance is undifferentiated. No? 
this. We can't even, if you just, just give our attention to seeing, we can't even actually see as we look out where the edges are. And there's this, this depth, movement, light, colour, form. <coughs> it's whole. It's a masterpiece. And out of that, we begin, and there's nothing wrong with the, 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 this happens, we begin to separate, uh, describe, apportion characteristics to, until we end up with, I'm over here and the door's over there and you lot are in between and the carpet's beige. And it's a perfectly valid description for talking to the carpet man. Or for describing what we, you know, how we get from here to the dining hall or whatever. But it would be a shame if we settle for that entirely, for that version of events. That's called trying to produce my masterpiece. No? Giving all the attention to my version of events. My version means the version that puts self in the middle and relates everything else to it. Relates all of you in relation to me, me here, you there, relates to the world just as it, in as much as it confirms self and confirms that kind of relationship here and there. Sinking into the masterpiece, which we could equally call spiritual practice, is giving a real sensitive attention to the bare... direct experience of life. So letting go of our interpretations as they come up, of our descriptions, of our sort of second-hand version of events, and daring to look completely afresh at this visual field. Looking for the wholeness in it. Looking for the undifferentiated quality in it. Looking at what we hear, looking at what we feel, acknowledging the differentiation that mind and self come up with and the usefulness of that, but not blindly taking it on as the whole truth of things. So when we look out and see the flex that float and dance. And that might mean whatever we're looking out on. There's a way in which we're drawn into that in formless circumstance. That the very act of perceiving, and we're not thrusting self's version into the middle of things, the very act of perceiving in that direct way draws us into intimate participation into non-separate participation. To an extraordinarily expansive, intimate way of being with life. And so as a creative act, our Dharma practice is to play with our perception. 
to really investigate it, to not just accept it as true because that's the way it seemed for years. It's like to, to wipe the slate clean and start again. <coughs> what does it mean to see? What does it mean to hear? Hearing is an extraordinary thing. We can't actually tell if we pay direct attention where sounds end and where our hearing of them begins. No? Common sense tells us, oh, sounds over there, right over here, comes in, eardrum vibrates or something. But our creative act is to find an uncommon sense which draws us in to that uh, participatory context. So to see, to look afresh, to listen afresh, to feel afresh. It's what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. The willingness to see afresh. He said, in the mind of the expert, there are very few possibilities. In the mind of the beginner, there are many. Another way I think our practice can be creative, a creative or artistic act, is in the way we engage with our relationships. And of course, those mean, that means relationship with oneself, the way one treats oneself, speaks to oneself, meets one's needs, relationships to others, and particularly the people one's closest to who are often rather tragically the people one treats the least respectfully and one's relationship with life in general. And meditation, of course, is a microcosm of the rest of our life. We often somehow see it as a very separate activity. It's extraordinary how much we'll talk about retreat life and daily life. It's okay to do this here, but what about when I'm, you know, wherever I live and whatever I do? As if the possibility to give care and attention to life somehow fizzles out when we leave Gaia House. If it's some property of Gaia House. But meditation, as I say, is a microcosm. So if we're, if we're training here in giving what I've been calling connection, curiosity and care to our experience, then our the creative practice in life is to give care, uh, connection, curiosity and care to everything that arises. And one of the places I say that really needs that is our closest relationships. Parents, children, lovers, family.
and the way love moves in those relationships. We often are quite confused about love. I love you, we say, often as if that love exists in some kind of ongoing way. I had a friend who was uh, in a relationship which was really painful for him and unpleasant. And his partner over these couple of years was very nasty to him. And they had all kinds of, you know, stormy relationship, that kind of relationship, big fights, and then builds up to some crescendo, and then great passion of lovemaking to dissolve the tension, and then that conditions more tension, and one of those, maybe you're familiar with them, I don't know. But in the process, she could be very belittling and incredibly venomous, and, and when I asked her about it, she said, but I love him, that's why. I get so upset, I get so angry, I get, because I love him so much. Kind of extraordinary vision of love. The love justifies so much uh, aggressive behavior. And often what we call love really has got much more to do with clinging to what I want. We say I love you, what we often mean if we look carefully is, I'll exist in a state of uh, appreciation and connection with you as long as you manifest behaviors that I like. And we call that love. And then when you stop manifesting behaviors that I like, or when you don't like m my behavior, then I'll cut off that love and I'll replace it with complaining, nagging, uh, moaning, etc., uh, etc. Et I mean, this, this is the person I love. And this is... I said, but I love you. We can't forget that love is a verb. It's something we have to engage with. Sometimes we might be loving someone, and other times we're not. But we kind of get lazy easily. And whether It's not really about whether one's in a love relationship or not. As I say, it's really about the way one um, connects with oneself, with others any of the people that you're close to in life, and with the relationship with life in itself. itself. Well, I mentioned briefly the other, the other night the qualities of love that the Buddha brings out, which he calls the Brahma-viharas, means divine dwellings of boundless states of heart. Boundless means there's no limit to how vast or deep or um, there's no limit to how much the heart can expand into these states and so the differentiation of love which is called caring responding appreciating allowing And that's a practice for us. When we leave Gaia House, we don't take the schedule with us. We don't take the silence with us. We don't take the support of so many other men and women 
that that support us in sitting here hour after hour, day after day. But we take the opportunity to really bring connection to our relationships, to bring real curiosity and to bring real care. As a practice, that means to care, to care, to respond, to appreciate, to allow. We could really get an enormous amount of benefit, an enormous amount of insight in contemplating what does it mean to really care for oneself in a situation, for another, to actually respond when another is suffering. to appreciate another even when they're manifesting behaviours which we don't like and to allow maybe the greatest gift of love we can offer someone is to allow them to be as they are to see them apart from what whether we like what's happening or not. And just another reflection on practice as a creative act. And the thread, I guess, that I'm interested in following is the way in which meditation as part of our spiritual practice informs the wider sense of spiritual practice or inner work or growth of consciousness or whatever kind of terminology you feel comfortable in. <coughs> Basically, this passion, this creative passion for waking up And because this is a meditation retreat, the emphasis is very much on meditation. But it would be a tragedy if we somehow got the impression that spiritual practice means meditation. Meditation is an extraordinary tool for training the mind in focus, in sensitivity, in brightness and the capacity to be really intimate with what's happening. But one cannot reduce a whole spiritual practice to sitting on one's ass, Which is, of course, crude, but means to the practice of meditation. So this needs to be a microcosm of the way we're meeting life. As a microcosm of the way we meet life, the beautiful thing about meditation is that we're putting aside all activity, all our other activity, so that the focus is solely on consciousness and its relationship to the objects that just naturally appear. When we're engaged more in the activities of life, 
we can still be profoundly interested in consciousness, but it's consciousness in relationship to. You know, there may be attention on awareness, but there has to be also awareness on the tea bag, the cup, the milk, the hot water. If that's what one's doing. And so there's something exquisite about meditation in as much as the complete absence of all external activity. It doesn't get more absent than sitting still with one's eyes closed, breathing as the only activity. And then, from that context, everything that appears is the stuff we have, the material we have to look at, to work with, to understand. But, and then seeing what's my capacity to actually apply connection, to apply curiosity, to apply care. Start learning about the things that actually hijack our capacity to care for, our capacity to be curious about. The things that hijack it, like getting caught up in obsessively wanting something, no? fantasizing. Like getting very resistant or aversive to something. Buddha gives a list of the five main things that hijack the capacity to attend wisely to life. And he calls them that one, sensual desire, obsessively wanting. Uh, aversion, kind of resisting the way things are. Restlessness and agitation, not, not being able to settle. So, Wonderful translation, sloth and torpor. Rather stilted English, but it's that foggy mind that we were talking about earlier. And then the last one is sceptical doubt. And where we kind of sit back and... Is it like this? Is it like that? And the way doubt can lead to judgment and to removing oneself, to holding oneself aloof and apart from. So just engaging this microcosm of meditation, the intention to, to connect, to be curious, to care for, and being really interested in what things get in the way of that. And then applying that microcosm to our life as a creative act, to our relationships with others. And this other aspect that the Buddha called the foundation for happiness, which is the practice of generosity. And the Buddha spoke prior to the generally um, the, kind of the path, if you like, in the Buddhist tradition is divided into sila samadhi panya, virtue, concentration, wisdom. But the Buddha says prior to engaging in that kind of practice, to establish a generous heart through the practice of dana in the Pali, generosity. There's something exquisitely powerful about being kind or generous. And we recognize that so well in ourselves when we do something that's generous. We recognize the goodness of it. No? 
very, in a very tangible way, we feel the goodness of it. When we're touched by the, somebody else's act of generosity, we feel the goodness of it. I lived for a couple of years on and off with um, a kind of hermit monk in, uh, in the lower hills of the Himalayas in India. And I was touched very many times by his, his generosity in a very simple, not in a grandiose way, not in making a show a kind of trying to be virtuous or kind, but in a natural extension of the heart to others. We used to work a lot in the garden, the two of us, growing potatoes and daikon and marigolds, kind of a staple of the garden. <clears throat> and towards the middle of October, the garden would start to look really beautiful, full of marigolds. And late in October, there's a festival called Diwali, which is the festival of light. And people light lanterns and decorate their homes with flowers. So towards the end of October, when the garden would be really exquisite with uh, all these marigolds, one morning, the morning of Diwali, all the village children would come to the garden and go through and just pick every single last flower. So that in the morning, they'd be there in this kind of sea of orange splendor, and in the afternoon, stalks. <laughs> I said, Bob, Bob, you have taken every single one. And he said, yes. <laughs> and this, his own joy was very, very tangible. And I sense a little my, my lovely garden. The joy of these children gathering flowers to decorate their shrines. Simple. He wouldn't have called it, I'm sure. Oh, it was an act of generosity, Martin, you know, to let. <laughs> no. It's just the way the heart moves and the goodness that's in it. So he felt delighted because of the goodness that naturally comes out of that. And I felt delighted seeing the goodness of his act. And there's, a, there's a, a line of the Buddha which I only very recently discovered where someone asks him how to recognize the practice of generosity. And he said, it's kind of very simple. When I read it, I thought, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> oh, yeah. He says, give until you feel generous. I thought, that's a fantastic piece of life advice. Give until you feel generous. He doesn't say, oh, just give and give and give, and the more you give, the more that's a practice. We can actually give beyond feeling generous. And then there isn't goodness in it anymore. Then we feel burned out, or we feel worried. Huh? If we give everything away, oh, we're just going to give. Oh, how am I going to get home? No bus fare. No. So if we give beyond feeling generous, we feel overextended. Of course, one could give everything away and not feel overextended. Walk home instead of taking the bus, happy in the knowledge one supported someone else. If that's the case, please give everything away. <laughs> but if we give beyond the feeling of generous, it turns into anxious, overextended. If we give of ourselves less than feeling generous, we actually feel mean. 
we feel troubled in some way by it, have a kind of uneasy conscience. It's a beautiful practice to give until we feel generous. It's beautiful because of the goodness that's in it, the goodness of the gift, of the giving, of the benefit for others, the goodness in the way it opens one's own heart. That's why the Buddha speaks about it as a foundation for happiness. Because it opens the heart. And it's opening the heart that allows us to settle with ourselves, that allows us to connect, to be curious, to care for what's happening. And I think that's a beautiful possibility. Generosity as a foundation for practice, as a creative act, as a spiritual practice. So in some way, these reflections are to preempt the question tomorrow. When I go back to my life, I think it's really worth Remember, of course, the conditions here are rarefied ones. There's something extraordinarily beautiful about those rarefied conditions. The silence, the schedule, the support. But it would be a shame if we got that mixed up with what spiritual practice is. It's certainly a part of it, and a beautiful part of it, and a profound part of it. But the capacities that we're generating here, are the very same capacities that we can bring to all of life. So it's my sincere wish that our lives are a truly creative act. That we can really investigate what does it mean to love To allow, to be intimate with oneself, others and the world. And for that movement, that creativity to be based in the movement of generosity, of extending the heart, of opening the heart. And the extraordinary thing about the heart that opens is that it doesn't bother with here and there this and that me and you it's not really about a choice between opening one's heart to oneself or to another should I be generous here or there because the very act of that opening heart is that as the heart opens more and more is included in it and the divisions of me and you and here and there dissolve in the extended heart. (coughs) So that the practice of generosity is also a practice of wisdom, of dissolving boundaries, of meeting life in the intimacy in which our lives actually already have their rest. May it be so. For each one of us and for all beings.
Thank you.